is a reading of John 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did still not understand. Well, sorry. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where have you put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, what he, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I am uh, 34 years old, educated, relatively well-read, mentally healthy, I think, and I've based my entire life on the belief that an ancient, uneducated, not particularly well-read Jewish peasant rose from the grave sometime around the turn of the first century. And I do know how that sounds. But one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith movement is that it traces its origins back to a definitive event. That is not true for Judaism or Buddhism or Islam or atheism. That event we call resurrection. And there's real historic evidence to weigh when it comes to the validity of that event. Evidence that will surprise you. Evidence so convincing that some have placed faith in Jesus uh, on that evidence, on the cold hard facts alone. But I'm actually not interested in presenting the evidence to you like a lawyer when you're on the jury because one of humanity's worst kept secrets is that we do not choose the direction of our lives by carefully weighing the evidence. We live on moments of clarity. The really important decisions that we make are not the product of left brain rationality alone. Rationality is a part of it for sure, but there's always a mystical moment where things just click into place. And I don't mean that in some religious sense. I mean that's how everyone, regardless of how you would describe your belief or unbelief, makes decisions. 
I'm talking about that one dance at that other guy's wedding reception when it hits you that you love her and every other plan that you had for your life suddenly slid into second place as her face came into focus. Or about that one camping trip when you were sitting alone by a fire and you finally really knew that you had the nerve to move to the big city. That, that it may mean dramatic failure, but, but dramatic failure based on risk was a risk that you had to take. Or that one meeting with your boss when suddenly you just knew, I, I'm leaving and I'm starting my own thing. And that means risking my security, risking the, my vocational path, risking, but staying means risking my soul. Who you love, where you live, what you do. If you are lucky enough to have had a choice in any of those, you did not make that choice through left brain mathematical rationality alone. There was a moment when it clicked, and here you are. So yes, I believe in the resurrection of an ancient Jewish rabbi with no credentials. But it's not because I watched the trial tapes and bought the defense argument. It's because there was a time in my life when this event called resurrection intersected with my own story in such a profound way that the resurrection of Jesus is actually the greatest explanation for the experience that I've had and gone on having. It was a moment of clarity and it awoke something in me that has not gone back to sleep. So before there was egg hunts and pastel sweaters and $19 brunches, there was a shocking, unexpected moment of clarity called resurrection. And so here we are uh, on another Easter, and Easter represents a really interesting contrast because some of you are here today and you're just passing through. Like it's important for whatever reason that you show face, but this is not a party that you're trying to get too comfortable at. Because some of you are already looking at me thinking, man, look, I don't care how nice you are. I don't care that you offered me single origin locally roasted coffee. I, I don't care that you have a cute live stream and wear a tie once a year. I don't care that you don't look completely crazy on the surface. I'm just passing through. And if that's how you feel as you're in this room today, I want you to know that you are so, so welcome here. And that I understand that position that you're bringing in. And you're welcome here today and any other day. And there's others who are in the exact same room that have a very personal explanation of when this resurrection event intersected with your own story in a way that actually did change things for you and actually has reformed you and is reforming you from within. And so you are here today with a heart throbbing with gratitude and joy. And if that's you, I just want to say happy Easter to you. He is risen. Yeah. You see, Easter represents an interesting contrast. One where people from all different places carrying all different stories, inspecting the same event from their various perspectives. And that's actually nothing new. So would you consider the characters in that first Easter morning with me? I mean, there were Roman guards who were assigned to keep watch over the tomb. Now, if this resurrection rumor were true, it was dazzling victory for some, but it would have been a personal slight for them. The Roman guards had so much invested in resurrection not being true. And maybe you do too. And that could be because of pride or even embarrassment. I mean, there's a certain kind of humiliation in, in admitting I had it wrong up until now. Or it could be because of lifestyle. I mean, if the resurrection is for real, uh, then that means something for the way that I live. And doing my own thing and managing my own quiet crisis is working for me just fine right now. Thank you very much. Or maybe, most often, it's about relationship. 
you just cringe at the thought of being identified with him or her or being included in some kind of group think with those people. And then there was the women, Mary Magdalene and a few friends that were grieving the loss of their leader, the one that they thought was the Savior. Now for them, if resurrection were true, it would be the greatest possible news if it were true. But there was a whole lot of honest, sincere questioning tangled up in that if. And maybe you've got some questions tied up in that same if, but if you could somehow resolve those questions in a way that was intellectually honest and not just wishful thinking, then this would be the best possible news. But that is a big if. And there was Emmaus. I mean, two of Jesus' disciples are walking to another town to start over. They've gone on this three-year experiment that they thought was the true story of everything, and then it didn't, in the end, take them where they thought they were going, and so they're walking away disappointed. And I wonder if that's you. Just as you sit here on another Easter Sunday, politely taking in the same old story, the posture of your heart is actually one that is already walking away disappointed. I thought this was the true story for a while, but it turned out to be a well-intentioned theory that then got shattered when an innocent, naive story was drawn from a simpler place into the complexity of the real world. Because that's what happened with Jesus, right? I mean, the story went really well on the outskirts in the rural, simple place, and then he brought it into the complexity of a pluralistic society like Central City, Jerusalem, and the founder of the story died with it. And I wonder if that's happened to you. Like you had a story of Jesus that made sense in a simpler place and you drug it into a pluralistic city like Portland and the story that you brought in does not stand up against the weight of the world that you find yourself in now and you're walking away disappointed, trying to make the most of a life that apparently doesn't end in healing after all. And then finally, there's Peter. I mean, every gospel writer singles out Peter because he's got a unique kind of skin in the game. He went from the de facto hero to publicly distancing himself from Jesus as soon as the movement went south. Now, if the resurrection story is true, that's great, but what do I do about the fact that I denied any association with the guy who can't die? Is the resurrection true? That's a good story. It's one worth, or a good question. It's one worth asking. But there's another question, one that's definitely more personal and surely more important to Peter as an individual. Do I want to see this God face to face? Can I bear to see him again? Can I bear to, to be seen by him in the shame that I'm now wearing? And perhaps that's the question that lives deepest within you today. It's not so much, uh, is this story true on some grand scale? It's more, do I want to see this God face to face? Do I want to know this God? Do I want to be known by this God? Where are you in the resurrection story? Because Easter morning is an event that can be traced back to a startling confrontation to every last one of those characters, and it's still a startling confrontation of the very best kind to every last one of us. Can you find yourself in the story today? Because the story I want to tell you is that same old one, the life and death and life of Jesus Christ. One story in three scenes, life, death, and then life again. Now that's a map of where we're headed today. Those are the major checkpoints between you and those expensive eggs that you're looking forward to, all right? So here we go, scene one, the life of Jesus Christ. 
Now, as our teaching text, we read from John's gospel, but to understand the end of the story, we've got to understand at least some of the basic plot points that get us to the end. And of all the infamous uh, sayings of Jesus, probably the most provocative words he ever uttered are found in John chapter 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, any sincere search for meaning has to deal with Jesus at some point because no other rabbi, shaman, mystic, or philosopher ever claimed what Jesus claimed. Jesus is the singular person in the whole of human history to ever claim to be the meaning of life. He says, I am the meaning that makes sense of the complex world. I am the direction that gives you coherent purpose. I am the life of joy and contentment and freedom that fills you up. And then when all of that got expressed, not just in a single phrase, but in a human life over the course of events and relationships, it came out looking a whole lot like love, like the purest and most selfless kind of, of love, undemanding love that the world has ever known. For Jesus, love wasn't just some enlightened moment of prepared teaching. Love was the way he went about his day-to-day -day life. He touched lepers. He welcomed prostitutes. He gave all of himself to the weak who could never repay him. But it wasn't just the oppressed that Jesus loved. He also loved the oppressor into rehabilitation. He rehabilitated a corrupt tax collector by including him in his inner circle. He took a private meeting with one of the priests that would later collude in his death. And as they whipped his back and legs until he was unrecognizable as a human being, he prayed that they might know that they are loved. But his love was not just flimsy or sentimental. It was an authoritative kind of love. Because he also walked around saying things like, you're forgiven, and then people received it as if he actually had the authority to forgive. He commanded diseases to be cured and injuries to be healed and birth defects to be corrected, and then the healing actually happened. And he even grants pardon of guilt before God, and the priests are in a panic about it, but the guilty are then set free. You see, any honest look at the life of Jesus will make your jaw hit the floor in awe or it will offend you completely, but there is no in-between. Scene two, the death of Jesus Christ. Now, some make a really big deal about the cross, but the thing about Jesus' death that's unique is not the cross. I mean, plenty of people were executed by crucifixion back in those days. The unique thing about Jesus' death is that it was promised and given. Right? It was promised. I mean, it is quite significant that the death of Jesus wasn't some accident that a few wrong turns led him to. It is something that he was outspokenly and intentionally moving toward his entire life. This is Luke chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. In fact, Jesus predicted his death nine times in the three synoptic gospels. Matthew 16 says that Jesus spoke of his resurrection and his death from time to time, leaving it open-ended how many times he talked about it beyond that that aren't recorded. All to say, Jesus' followers made a really big deal about his death because Jesus made a really big deal about his death. He was pointing to it as particularly significant. And then it was also given. I mean, Jesus says a whole lot of things like, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. My life is given as a ransom for many. This is the greatest love, to lay down your life for your friends. So according to Jesus, his death was not the heinous act of a barbaric God. It was love. It was the climactic expression of love from a God who is relentlessly stubborn when it comes to love. Jesus' death was not necessary or inevitable the way ours is. It was promised to us and then given for us so that we could choose something other than death. And that finally brings us to scene three, 
life again. You see, the sacrificial death of Jesus gets transformed from history's great tragedy into history's great victory by this thing called resurrection. Because if death was final, we are hopeless. But because 72 hours later, even death couldn't hold him, real, lasting hope was set forth into the world. But if we're gonna make sense of an event as incomprehensible as resurrection, we first need to be equally brutally honest uh, about the world in which resurrection happened. And we, every last one of us, the, the, the human condition is to live your life wedged between two sets of problems, internal problems uh, and terminal problems. Right, first, internal problems. Contrary to popular belief, the resurrection story did not begin with Jesus. It started at the, the beginning of the whole book with Genesis. And according to the Genesis creation narrative, creation it took place in six days or maybe time periods. And the first five days, God filled the earth with everything to support human life, sun and moon, land and water, plant and animal species. And then on the sixth day, God created human beings and he set them apart from the rest of creation by putting his breath into them. In other words, human beings are the masterpiece of the great artist. They are the ones bearing his very image. See, the point on the first page of the Bible is this. If you wanna get a look at creation at its most glorious, don't travel to the Swiss Alps or book a flight to Fiji. Look at a person, at an elderly woman or a businessman on his way to work or a screaming infant or yourself in the mirror. He, she, you are the masterpiece of God's creation. Have you ever been in the room while a baby is born? I have three times now. And it is terrifying. Uh, the first time around, I remember getting prepared with eight weeks of breathing exercises and classes. I watch Netflix documentaries that to this day I cannot unsee. And I thought I was ready, but nothing could have prepared me. Because you're laughing and crying at the same time, even though you promised yourself you're not that kind of person. But there's this, this strange love that comes alive in you for this little bitty life that so far has only forced you into an all-nighter and then made you hold them while covered in gross liquids and pretend that you liked cutting this fleshy cord. <laughs> now, I've, I've been to Colorado in the spring and to Vermont in the fall, and I've sat with my feet dangling off a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean and walked the streets of an old cobblestone Colombian city, and I've watched the sun rise in Paris and the sun set in California, and I've looked up at the stars from the open land of Wyoming, and I've spent many, many late nights and early mornings on rooftops in New York City, and none of it compares to being in that sterile, tiny hospital room at 1 a.m. in mid-August. None of it compares to meeting Hank in the first moments of his life. This, says Genesis, is the reaction of God over every human life. But of course, the corrupted world has a way of drowning out our first sense of value. I mean, you're the masterpiece of the original artist, but you'd also change a thing or two about yourself if you could. Right, you'd add this to your personality, you reorder this emotional pattern, you change this or that thing about your body, you'd raise your cheekbones, clear up your complexion, and edit this one chapter of your past. So Genesis 1 sounds beautiful, but we struggle to believe it. 
In the brutally honest memoir of a guy named Joseph Noss, he describes the best day of his life when at 12 years old, he was staying over at his friend Colin's house and they had gone out to the movies and and then ordered pizza and made root beer floats and the next day was a Saturday and Colin's whole family like laughed and made pancakes together. And then Colin's mom drove Joseph back home to the fake house that he had picked out for the pretend life that he told everybody that he had. And she had driven him home plenty of times before and every time Joseph would walk up to this house and he would wait at the front door until he saw her car pull away and then he'd walk a mile down the road to the house that he actually lived in. But on this day when she was driving him home, there was a problem. That as they pulled up to that house, there was another family that was obviously not his playing in the front yard. And she just stopped the car in front of the house and both of them sat in silence for a minute as she tried to make sense of what she was now processing and as he tried to hide the tears that were suddenly welling up behind his eyes. Where do you actually live, Joseph? See, he lived in the nearby housing projects with a single mom who was a low-functioning addict, but that the building that they lived in, it was situated right at the edge of a school district. And so he went to school with all the suburbanites that had two-parent homes and family dogs and pancake breakfasts on Saturdays. And so he just pretended that he had all those same things as well. Where do you actually live, Joseph? She asked from the driver's seat of her Mercedes coupe. He acted like he didn't hear it. With tears behind his eyes, he just blurted out, thanks for the pizza, and got out of the car before she could see him crying. And then he writes this, as I walked away, I thought of how I would never see her again and would never sleep over at Collins again, not after what had just happened, not now that she knew. And that impulse the instinct to hide in order to protect ourselves, to hide and cover up our weakness, our emotion, to never be really fully seen. That's the most ancient of instincts. Back to Genesis. As beautiful as the first scene is, the second scene is all the more tragic. I mean, the forbidden fruit was tasted, a perfect world is then corrupted, and Adam hid from God. He held back his tears, he shielded God from his emotion, and he hid away his weakness. And then eventually, he walks out of the Garden of Eden, thinking of all that's been lost, thinking he would never really be seen by God again, not after what had just happened, not now that he knew. Soren Kierkegaard defines the biblical concept of sin not as the breaking of moral rules, but as not wanting to be oneself before God. You see, the internal problems of ours, they get expressed a thousand different ways, but they all can live under this banner called shame. All of us are Joseph in the passenger seat of that Mercedes, fragile and fearful whenever we are really fully seen, and we never entirely grow out of that. Uh, We just learn to cloak it in more sophisticated disguises. You see, we all carry this familiar blend of symptoms from within us, things like fear, like that unshakable itch of insecurity that never allows me to let my guard down, that never allows me to be completely known. And it shows up in some as loudly as self-doubt that clings to dear life for any way to feel safe, and it's as seductive as unchecked ambition in others that's always accomplishing, always proving myself against some unspoken standard I set when I didn't even know I was measuring. And then there's resentment, like that inner angry fight in you that never quite stops. 
And it manifests itself as loudly as rage in some and as quietly as judgmental thought in others, but we've all got it. Or loneliness, the search for intimacy that we want uh, but don't know how to get, and it takes on an endless variety of forms, everything from an undiscerning demand for companionship to the need to stay socially busy in order to feel okay to a pornography addiction and so on. The way I deal with these internal problems is to select a part of my life elevate it, and then ask it to hold the weight of my significance. So I take my career or my social life or my appearance or my sense of adventure or whatever, and then it becomes a way for me to affirm my importance, a way for me to ask you to affirm the fragile sense of my own importance. It's an attempt to restore that Genesis value we had at first apart from God. It's a way to become God-like without dealing with God, to borrow a phrase. You see, sin, the way we define it around here, is to try to meet my deep needs by my own resources. And it never works. At best, it just masks the symptoms temporarily, but then they come back stronger. More fear, more resentment, more loneliness, more shame. We never grow out of it. We just become more adept at hiding. Something's gone horribly wrong, and the consequences of that are of the broadest and most personal variety. They're as broad as genocide, world hunger, systemic injustice, and mass graves in Ukraine. And they are as personal as insecurity, anxiety, and the incessant struggle to be myself. Because somewhere along the way, I've lost myself, and the fight of my life is just to recover the identity that somehow I've lost. And that is what the Bible names sin. And that's actually not a conservative, primitive, religious idea. Freud, Plato, Martin Luther King Jr., and Jesus all agreed on that part. And sure, that word's been abused by some, and so it may reek with emotional baggage for you. So just switch out the vocabulary if you'd like, but do not throw out the diagnosis. Because sin is not an accusation or a condemnation or a moral theory. It's just an honest diagnosis. It's a trip to the doctor where you discover, oh, there's a name for this disease that I carry. And the trouble with pretending that I'm well when the truth is I've got all the symptoms is then I miss out on the healing. You see, sin is not about a God with an annoyingly narrow moral framework. Sin is about the deepest kind of healing, the most liberating freedom, and the fullest kind of living. So all of us have this set of internal problems. But then on the other side of us, we have terminal problems. Because before Easter's a polarizing story of a real-life superhero, it's a common story that we all know too well. Grief. It's a few women carrying spices to an ancient tomb. That's the ancient equivalent of flowers to a gravestone. I'm so sorry for your loss. Is there anything we can do? That's the opening scene. I remember once getting a text mid-morning on a Tuesday. It was from Amber, one of my closest friends. And she was letting me know that her sister had a case of the flu so bad that she had to get checked into the hospital. And that actually had happened to me once. And so after kind of shaking off that really bad memory, I said a quick half-hearted prayer for her and then continued on with my agenda for the day. That was Tuesday. On Friday, I sat passing uh, paper takeout containers of Indian food around Amber's kitchen table because she had asked me and a couple of other of her closest friends to come over because she didn't want to be alone in her grief because her sister had died in the hospital from a common airborne virus. 
a 40-year-old woman, mother of two, just a few days removed from a New Year's party with friends when she was toasting and making resolutions. How is it that you can be that well one day and then a few days later you don't even have the time to live the resolutions that you were making? No one said a whole lot that night while we sat there together. There, there wasn't much to say. Amber's sister was gone and the wound was still so fresh that, fresh that the grief probably wasn't gonna land on her fully for a few more days. And so we just sat there in the shock of it all and we prayed prayers that were honest prayers. Prayers with a whole lot more questions than answers in them. And you've got your own scenes like that. They're usually vivid ones. Usually ones we don't wanna go back to, but sometimes we can't help it. And in the ancient Roman world where the early church took root, there was a law passed uh, that no one could bury the dead within the city limits of Rome. And so they founded a separate city called the Necropolis, which means city of the dead, and it was just one massive graveyard. The Romans may have been the first society in history to find a way to live shielded from the reality of death, but they certainly weren't the last. I mean, we spend our whole lives trying to prolong our youth. Age-defying makeup, dietary supplements, Kiehl's is coming out with some red Mayan, Mayan mud that like, you rub on your forehead and that is tighter than a toddler's, right? Today's sex symbols barely look human in their old age because of all the work they get done. And then when death gets so close that we can't deny it any longer, the elderly pass their final days in nursing homes, the dying are cared for by strangers in hospitals, and morgues handle our loved ones so we don't have to. See, we may have come up with a subtle or more sophisticated version, but we've built our own necropolis. Now compare our way of, the, of life to the Stoic philosophers who had a practice called the premeditation of evils, which involved um, thinking about the worst things that could possibly happen to you in your life, then meditating on them long enough to discover what you would do in response to them. We've replaced that with just pretend that, that we're all okay and we'll live forever and we'll cross the death bridge when we come to it. And that works most of the time. That gets us by on most ordinary days. But then we find ourselves passing takeout containers of Indian food around our, one of our best friend's kitchen tables or weeping over a casket or trying to believe the empty platitudes that we're saying to try to comfort someone who's mourning. You see, we've constructed a way of living that lets us pass most days without asking the most important questions and then death kicks down our door and robs us of that illusion and leaves us behind asking the questions that we were used to blissfully ignoring. That's what happened to the author Leo Tolstoy when he wrote this. My question, that at which the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. From the foolish child to the wisest elder, it was a question without an answer. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there anything I have that death cannot take? Because let me let you in on a secret that you know but have found a way to live in denial of. You are going to die. One day in the not too distant future, it won't matter what you have for dinner tonight or if you find that hidden gem on Zillow or how many, or if your head's glowing from that Kiehl's serum or, or, or what title lives next to your name on LinkedIn or how many stamps you've got on your passport or how important you feel when you walk into a particular room. You are going to die and you can't take any of that with you. 
So are you ready to leap into the void, stripped bare of everything you've accumulated that makes you feel comfortable? Because that's what crossing the death bridge when you come to it actually means. And you don't have to be a stoic, but at least dignify your life by considering the options. I mean, every successful journey begins with a destination in mind, right? A life that doesn't consider the options is an aimless, wandering journey without a clear destination. And as a society, we've gotten really good at pretending, but the undeniable truth is this. Death is our greatest enemy, and death wins 100% of the time, unless there's a kind of love that outlives death. So here's the human condition, the world in which resurrection barges in like a confrontation. We live wedged between two sets of problems we can't escape, internal problems and terminal problems. We all live with struggles that we at our best find clever ways to disguise and nothing lasts past the inevitable death that's awaiting us. So what are the possible solutions to that equation? Well, one is just to simply resign yourself to the fact that you can't do anything about it, so you might as well live for the moment as long as you can. You might as well get as much as you can while the getting's still good and then do whatever you need to to deal with the pain in the meantime. But Jesus offers a different option than that. What if there's a better story? What if death isn't the end after all? What if I won a victory so decisive that it removed the period off the end of the sentence so the thing keeps going on forever? And what if I could so heal your inner wounds, your shame, fear, resentment, and loneliness that you actually want to live forever because you're finally made whole? What if there's a better story? There's this uh, one scene in the movie Shawshank Redemption which is a dated reference but if you grew up in the 80s, it was on TBS every Saturday, so you saw it again and again and again. Anyway, there's this one scene when uh, a prisoner named Andy locks himself in the warden's office, and he plays Mozart over the prison PA system. And as he does, all the hardened prisoners at work doing their various things, they just stop, and they all let the music wash over them. And Andy puts his feet up on the warden's desk and leans back and relaxes, and closes his eyes, and then the guards begin to beat on the warden's office door that's locked, and they're looking in, and he kind of peeks at him for a second, and then just turns the music louder. And then the epic voice of Morgan Freeman narrates. It's always Morgan Freeman, isn't it? <laughs> for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. So what is that? Is that a, an adult childishly interrupting other adults with a fairy tale? Or is it a man pulling back the curtain on a greater reality? One truer than metal bars or counting days until my next court date. Is it senseless romanticism or is it a profound moment of clarity? And where are you supposed to build your life? Should you build your life on all the ordinary days when you just pass by in your cell, or do you build your life on the moment of clarity that pierced all the monotony? As I've come to understand it, resurrection is a profound moment of clarity that then redefines all of the ordinary. You see, resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is about terminal problems. I once sat right across from a 38-year-old man who lost his father really suddenly, and then through tears he asked me, Tyler, do you really think that on the other side of this, there's a real chance that my dad experienced some kind of great relief? What would you tell him? I mean, what would you say back to Corey? 
Because without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no he's in a better place. There's no he's at rest. There's nothing. The lights went out and that person that lived inside your father's body with a personality and a sense of humor, whose arms made you feel safe when you were a scared little boy, whose voice you can still hear if you close your eyes, whose idiosyncrasies you find yourself accidentally imitating, that soul that lived and loved and regretted and tried and failed and laughed and wept, oh, that was all for naught. Just meaningless happenstance. Without the resurrection of Jesus, that is the only story. The French philosopher Luc Ferry said, all philosophy is really just about one thing, death. And then in his book, A Brief History of Thought, after exploring a number of different philosophical routes to dealing with our terminal problem, that everyone who's ever lived at some point stops living, he, who's openly an unbeliever, writes this. The Christian response to mortality is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but also to beat death itself. And by doing so in terms of individual identity rather than anonymity or abstraction, it would seem to be the only version that offers a truly definitive victory. See, only Jesus gives us a picture of love that's stronger than death. And that's why an agonizing public execution is not a barbaric, outdated, grotesque, religious idea. It's a stunning picture of love. Because when Jesus carried his own cross on his back, it wasn't just a wooden beam that he was carrying, it was the weight of the world's suffering and injustice. He was holding all of human wrong on his back, holding all of the world's suffering, and the claim of resurrection is there's a kind of love that outlives death. Ernest Becker says resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. See, it means injustice is brought to an end. It means no one will ever go hungry again. It means there's a day coming when a child never gets trafficked again and a victim is never abused again and no one, no one ever grieves again. It means love gets the final word and that resonates with me. Like Mozart playing over a prison PA system, it speaks with truth and clarity to somewhere deep within my spirit. But resurrection is also about our internal problems. Uh, a friend of mine who's in recovery invited me to go to an AA meeting with him to step onto his turf. And so I met him outside of this real old church building in New York City. We were in the heart of the West Village, right at rush hour. And he walks me into this dimly lit, old, dingy church basement. And there's these squeaky metal folding chairs spread all the way out. And I sit down on the back row of this standing room only meeting. And as it gets started, the people counting their first 30 days of sobriety identify themselves first. And so it goes like this. Steve, alcoholic, 23 days. Glenn, 17 days. James, alcoholic, 11 days. It's that kind of thing. And people just, you know, politely and quietly applaud after each. And then there's this kid can't be older than his early 20s, stands up visibly nervous, forgets to even tell us his name, and just says, one day. And no one started clapping right away. There was just this silence. And then the silence was broken by 
the sound of one of those chairs squeaking out and this old man who I later learned had over 30 years sober stands up from across the room and he did not walk to the aisle. He starts climbing through the chairs, moving people out of the way to get to this kid and then just wraps his arm around him and this kid goes limp and just begins weeping in this old man's arms. Because it's one thing to hear that a young guy's fighting, for, fighting his demons and trying to get sober. That's one thing. It's quite another thing to know exactly what it feels like to go out for a couple beers and then wake up the next morning on the sidewalk. And to hide your addiction from everyone you know while it eats away at you. And to vomit on your own desk at work and urinate on your own bedroom carpet and ruin your marriage and disappoint your kids and hurt everyone that you love the most. How bad does it have to get for a 23-year-old kid to stand in front of a room of strangers and say, I need help. And this is day one. You see, that old man knew exactly how bad. Because he lived it. So what if there's a better story? I mean, what if there's a God who knows your wounds, not theoretically, but exactly and personally because he's lived it? And what if there's healing so complete that there's nothing left to hide? And what if there's love so full that it can swallow up shame? Resurrection is God's way of swimming across the neat rows of chairs to embrace anyone and everyone who honestly lets themselves be seen by him. Anyone and everyone who's bold enough to say, I need help. And this is day one. And that's why God would come in human form. You see, Jesus dignifies our bodies by living in one. He dignifies our pain by feeling in himself. And he dignifies our emotions and our psychologies and our family histories and our inner wounds by taking all of that on himself. The only antidote to internal problems, to our sin, is forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is God's way of giving you back the Genesis worth that he gave you first before you had a chance to earn it or to lose it. It's his way of restoring your value without you having to prove yourself. Resurrection is not about you being good enough. It's about God being loving enough. And forgiveness is the only cure to the disease that you and I carry. The presence of Jesus in those precise places of our shame brings our shame to the end. It turns hiddenness into a lie and being seen into the truth that makes you come alive. It, it turns the, the place of greatest pain into the place of love personified by encounter. And that means that resurrection at the end of the day is about all of us. There's about a dozen explanations of the resurrection story in the book of Acts and not a single one of them centers on going to heaven instead of hell. Every last one of them focuses on the transformation of this present life. You see, there's this troubling rumor that's been going around over the last hundred years or so that the Bible ends with God sweeping away a bunch of people into some faraway paradise. And if that's the future you've been looking forward to, I'm so sorry to disappoint you. That's just not the end of the story. And that's got everything to do with Plato and nothing to do with Jesus. The juxtaposition that lives at the heart of the Bible is not the, the distance between heaven and hell. It's the distance between heaven and earth. It's that God made heaven and earth as one place and then sin drove them apart and God's great passion is to bring those worlds back together. God is not trying to scare people into heaven. He's trying to invade earth with heaven. God is not trying to get people into heaven. He's trying to get heaven into people. And so the surprise of Easter morning wasn't that there's hope out there somewhere beyond this life, it's that there's hope right here within this present life. There's hope not in just in a far off future, but that heaven is coming to earth right now in the present moment. 
And so to say yes to Jesus is not simply to sign up for a reserved spot behind the pearly gates one day. It is to join in the redemption of the world and to become a living preview of all that's been promised. No one said this better than William Willimon, who writes, the most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than something decisive has happened in history. See, resurrection is not only a better way to die, it's a better way to live. And resurrection is about not only us, but it's about you. See, after a military victory, uh, a Roman soldier would ride his horse through the streets of a city and cry out, Roma victor, Roma victor, Roma victor. And that ancient declaration was called the gospel. So Christians just borrowed that term of a declaration and, and, and applied it to the greatest victory in the history of the human race. So the original language for this word gospel would have been a soldier riding through a city crying out, Christus Victor, Christus Victor, Christus Victor. And that's because every last one of us has internal and terminal problems that we cannot solve. And Jesus, in his resurrection, is victorious over those very things. That victory is then made available to anyone who wants it to be pressed down into the individual human heart. Resurrection means the consequences of your issues, dysfunction, your failed attempts at self-sufficiency, the mistakes you've made, and the horrible mistakes others have made that you've been an innocent victim of, Jesus takes those on himself. And in exchange, he gives you the consequences of his perfect life, a restored relationship with God, a perfect view of the self, and a unique participatory role in the redemption of the world. The gospel is not, here's a list of things you can have that might make God like you. The gospel is not, stop sinning and you could have a shot at heaven. The gospel is everything you need for salvation, for full and free life right now has been accomplished fully and finally on your behalf. Even now, God is working to recreate broken creation through broken people and, and call it home. Jesus' message on resurrection morning at the closing of our very teaching text was this, go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. His message was everything I have is now yours. I put, I put all of your problems to death on Friday that you might have the consequences of my life every day beyond it. You see, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is to believe that God's great passion is to heal and redeem his creation, but it's also more personal than that. It's to believe that I am God's great passion and his great work is to heal and redeem me. So if you consider the claims of Jesus I imagine that you'll find it hard not to like him. I mean, he's surprisingly winsome and attractively reasonable. But if you encounter Jesus personally, he fills your ordinary life with his Holy Spirit, with his living presence, and it is the most profound sense of love. The primary concern of Jesus was never to convince the world through power. His end game wasn't that one day you might believe in him the way you believe in gravity. It's that you would receive his love. And that's why when Jesus burst forth from a tomb, he did not burst forth saying, behold. He said, Mary. A personal address to an individual who was lost and searching and mostly hopeless. Jesus did not burst forth in public spectacle. He burst forth in personal, humble love because that's the only thing that lasts forever. It's the only thing that outlives death. 
Resurrection is for the whole world and yet it is hand delivered to you. And when you realize that the personal love of God is all directed right at you, well, the, the author Anne Lamott, uh, when she described her own faith in Jesus late in her life in an interview, she described it this way. It was an accident, I swear. <laughs> and that's kind of how it always happens. There's a relational encounter with the living God. Love came after me. What was I supposed to do? It was a startling and unexpected moment of clarity. It was an accident. So what is all that? That story I've been telling you, is that just Mozart playing over the PA system in the warden's office, telling a fairy tale for a brief moment of escape and nothing more? Or is it the pulling back of the curtain on a greater truth, an event that redefines all the ordinary ones? Is that a stunning moment of clarity worth building your whole life on? You get to decide. But I would just say that if this is not the God that you know, then this is too good to hold yourself together. It's too good to resist. It's too good to put off for another.